Welcome everybody, we've got Emmanuel here, Emmanuel a good friend of mine and more importantly an e-commerce warlord, if we can call you that. <laughs> so Emmanuel uh, is also a trained copywriter, one of the best copywriters I know and he's, he's running a very successful e-commerce business and we are here today in the first episode of the pod podcast to also focus a little bit on the, on, on the kind of, on the Backends when starting out a, with you know, with an e-commerce business, and we're gonna learn the amazing story of Emmanuel, how he got started, what uh, were the crucial things he had to learn initially, and what are the determining factors of success uh, in e-commerce. So welcome. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Glad to be on this podcast. Awesome. So one question that people typically ask themselves when getting started, and this is an obvious one, right? So how to find your million dollar business idea. But so we're going to get to that. But actually a question before that, because there are so many product ideas, but a level above that is there's so many business ideas. So what is it that made, that made you choose a product business? I think people, a lot of times, they adopt what I call the, the gold rush mindset, you know, and, um, and, and there's just so many things that are wrong with this kind of approach. So what I call the gold rush mindset is um, they, they'll see a guru on the internet who preaches a certain approach to making money online because, and then they're like, well, it's obviously working for this guy, so it's going to work for me. But the, the problem with that is that we're all unique, we're all different. And so one approach never fits everyone, right? So my approach to choosing my niche, I mean, it's not really a niche, but choosing my sort of business uh, fits something that I learned a long time ago from, from one of my mentors. And it's this idea that you really want to find the intersection between what you're good at, what you enjoy, and then what people value, right? It's kind of like the golden triangle. Um, and, and it's actually an exercise that, that people can do is you just draw these three circles, make them intersect, and then you figure out what is it that you enjoy doing? What is it that you're good at? And then what is it that people actually value, like what they're willing to pay for? And if you can find something that's really in the middle of this, this golden circle, um, that's when you're in business. That's when you have something that you can really excel at and where you can make money. So in my case, um, obviously I started out with, I did a lot of different things, but the business that ended up doing the best for me was the, um, the supplement business that, that I started. And the reason why uh, it did really well is because it's in that golden circle, right? So what I genuinely enjoy is I genuinely, I'm genuinely passionate about health supplements and health. I mean, you know, right, you know, a few meters away from us, there's a shelf with literally like probably over a hundred different health supplements, you know? So I don't do this just because I make money from it. I, you know, it's, it's genuinely interesting to me. Um, the, the other thing is, um, I'm obviously really good at, at marketing and, and selling products online. Um, I've been doing this for a number of years now. And then the third thing is obviously also people really value health supplements. I mean, we're talking about a billion dollar industry here. So it all fits, it all works. And obviously it sounds kind of easy. It's not just as easy as making this little circle, but it's definitely a good way to start. So. Um, that's how I chose what I would get into. Um, I would say if you're just starting out, um, it might be a good idea to choose something that is kind of proven and established. 
Um, and, and obviously in my case, supplements were, you know, we know it's selling, right? So if you're starting a supplement business, it's not really a matter of like, do people want your product? Because, you know, people want supplements. It's more a matter of like, why would they choose yours versus all the other ones? Um, so yeah, that was, that was my approach to choosing the business. And that's and that's great uh, because you know you you emphasize the fact that the, the product that you're actually selling has to be valuable and I and I don't think that we need to explain this much to to our audience how important it is to find the market fit for your solution. But having said that, so we know that supplements sell in general. But what was your approach when it, when doing your market research when choosing the products when that that you're gonna eventually uh, that you ended up selling? Did you have to test a lot of products? beforehand and what did you do also to mitigate the risk of actually having the the inventory first uh, how did you kind of what kind of background work did you do to make sure that what you're actually going to end up producing is going to sell so i think market research in general is just uh, it's vastly underrated so people just vastly under research um, in general so I, I i like to say that there's two things that that fuck people up in business is one obviously they don't take enough action but then the other thing is they don't reflect and think enough so i mean you could argue they're not really doing anything if they're not acting or thinking but but it's still a very valid point so my approach was not testing hundreds of products that's not how i did it i know people who do that they do well that's that wasn't my approach to it because Fundamentally, um, if you really understand your market and if you really understand what people want, um, I'd say you can sort of guess. Not, it's not even guess. You can really figure out how to create a unique product and how to create a product people are going to want to buy. So what I did is I decided I'm going to know everything I can about the supplement industry. And that's not something that I started doing the day I decided I wanted to launch my company. That was actually a multi-year process because around the age of, I would say 16, if I remember, um, one of my mentors told me that if I really wanted to, um, to sort of do something bigger than what I was doing at the time, which I, I used to sell um, eBooks about health and fitness, and he told me, if you want to do something bigger, uh, you're obviously interested in supplements. So, you know, you already want to start doing research around that. So what I used to do back then, and that's what he told me to do, is whenever you see a supplement store, you want to go in that store and you want to ask the salesperson, what is your best selling product right now? And that's just a habit that I picked up. And, and again, I, would, I was already doing this, except asking, like I would already go in the store, you know, because I wanted to know, because like, I, I just loved health supplements, you know. And, um, but they, he told me, so I would ask what's the best selling product. And then I would go on these e-commerce sites like iHerb and all these big supplement sites. And, and I would really try to look for what was selling and what was working and, and what wasn't working as well. So that started at around 16. So then by the time I was 18 um, and I wanted to launch this supplement company, I already had all this knowledge about the industry, right? Um, the other thing, so that's, that was the background. What I did when I actually wanted to launch the company is I just, uh, I, I think I even bought a few market research reports by, by big companies. And I just looked at the data about the supplement industry and, and what was going on there. And the biggest thing that um, I noticed personally was 
the the best segment in the industry is definitely seniors. It's older people. So it's funny how, you know, me being in my little bubble of obviously younger people, everyone was telling me, well, you know, you're obviously going to do a fitness thing. And then, and then funny enough, I did my research and I was like, well, the fitness segment um, is definitely overcrowded. And then also it's not even the best segment because if you look at the buying data, most of the money in the industry comes from seniors. And then also um, my mom was also very interested in health supplements and anti-aging things. And, you know, shout out to her if she's watching this. Um, so she was kind of an inspiration in that as well because I could see what she was buying. And then I even interviewed her a couple of times to really figure out what was going on. So that's something very useful that people can do is really interview the target market in the industry that you want to go and interview one person and really go deep into what their problems are and their motivations and, and their pain points and all these things. Um, and, and I get a lot of insights from that. Just, just, it was just invaluable, you know, things about like, you know, some of the things you might, you can ask is like, you know, what are their nightmares, quote unquote, like, you know, when they're alone in their room at night, what's going through their mind, you know, and just things like that. So that's what I did. The other thing is obviously at the time, I just looked at the funnels that were running just to see what kind of marketing angles they had, what kind of ads they had. Um, and I really wanted to know everything I could about this industry. Um, and then obviously just, just looking at what's selling on Amazon and, and all these things. And over time, you do that for maybe a few weeks and you start to really get this picture of the market. Uh, and then once you have this picture, I think you've done most of the hard work because um, if you're just a little bit smart, you're going to figure out that there's obviously something that um, that is trending. So what happened to me is I saw... Obviously, we're going to go for seniors. And then I saw for that demographic, what was working really well was uh, probiotics. And probiotics was also something that I was really interested in. I actually wrote um, in my not in my third year of high school, which was the year where I dropped out. But, you know, I had to do a research reports and I ended up writing this um, this 70 page uh, research reports on probiotics because I was really interested mm -hmm. in it. So then I also saw, well, these things are selling like crazy, you know, and, and I obviously have just written this almost this thesis about not these, you, you get my point, this, this sort of huge report about probiotics. I, I had I went through like over 500 different studies. So I knew a lot about it. It was selling and I was like, there's just no way I'm going to do anything else. You know, it's just so obvious to me. Um, and then since I knew so much about it, I knew how to make a better product. Um, which in my case, I just did through increasing the number of bacteria that was in every capsule. That was kind of my marketing angle. You know, so most capsules in France at the time, they had one or two billion bacteria per capsule. And then I kind of figured out that, first of all, knowing about the product, I knew if I could put 30 billion bacteria per capsule, um, obviously it, it makes it a better product because I knew about probiotics and had experienced the difference between 2 billion and 30 billion and I knew it's just, you know, it's like a whole nother thing. And then also from the marketing perspective, I mean, how good is that? You know, 10, you know, 10, 15 times more bacteria per capsule, 30 times more bacteria per capsule. That's just like so graphic. So, and then that's how I came up with this very first product that, that was a huge success. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, make it double, make it triple. <laughs> I, lo I love the angle. Yeah, so this is this is cool. So you did some. Um, so let me just recap what you mentioned. So first of all, you got into the industry really deeply, right? So you understood the ins and outs about the reports, about what's selling, about what's not selling. Um, so all the background work was there. Now, was there any kind of quantitative approach? to this as well so what kind of uh, what are the indicators to you that something is going to be a good product are you looking at just the sales volume or is there any also sweet spots of the of the sales volume versus competition that something is selling um, and what are kind of the the red flags when it comes to what kind of market not to enter i think my approach was definitely not yeah, I'd say if, if I had to, quant like, it was probably like 20% a numbers approach, but 80% of it was really, uh, it's really a feel that you have to get. And, and I'm, I'm not a very like touchy-feely person, but when I talk, I'm talking about a feel, it's more like this sort of intuition that y you have to build up through this research. Um, so obviously you want to look at sales numbers and, and all these things, but that's really hard. First of all, the data is not always accurate, you know, because no com companies don't have to report. They do have to report their sales data, but you don't know if these sales come from their probiotic or from their vitamin D, you know. So you, it, the data isn't going to help you choose the exact product. The data is helpful when it comes to the industry, to scope out the industry. But one of the things that is really, really helpful is in any market, um, there's always these waves. So that the way I see, I perceive markets um, is that I see them in waves that kind of come and go. And um, the way you really find something before, like ideally, obviously, if the market is a wave, well, you want to get right here, right? Because it's right before the wave. And that's what happened to me with probiotics because the probiotic wave in France um, is really did this. And when I started um, in late 2016, it was really about to blow up. And, and I think I did help the bubble. Um, it wasn't a bubble, but I helped the wave sort of blow up because I just did so much advertising about it, you know? Um, so basically I was here and then the thing blew up. Obviously I, I rode it all the way to the top and they started going down. That's when I went into like other, other products and, and other things. Um, and then by now, it's actually this completely mainstream thing that um, that everyone knows about. So, but how do you know that wave? Well, one of the things is you want to look at, if you can, the books. Books are great and articles and, and just content in general, because making content is a lot easier than, than making products. So if you can look at what is it that people are interested in when it comes to the content in your niche, right? And one of the things that I saw is people were just devouring content about the gut bacteria online. And there's also this book that came out, I think in 2015, about the gut bacteria, the, the gut health in France. Um, and it was actually a French book. And it was a massive bestseller. It was in every library. Um, and, and it was just this huge thing. So, and, but those were just the books and then the products were selling well too, but then they weren't that good. So that's when you know there's something that's going to happen when, when there's books and it doesn't have to be books. If you see articles consistently getting a lot of traffic, a lot of shares, you know, you want to look at social media pages, um, and you can kind of get a sense for what's going on with the market. I'm not saying it's easy, but I mean, the rewards are definitely 
definitely worth it. All right, great. That, 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 that absolutely sounds good. So it seems that, you know, there is some quantitative research that you can do, but uh, let's face it, in business, there's no absolute certainty about the product that you're entering, right? So yeah, as far as you do your basic research, you understand what's happening in the industry, follow the trends, look into Google Trends, what kind of content and keywords are trending upwards, right? Then you may be in the in the right market, right? And then you just you just give it a go and uh, and go ahead and Screw put it to the there. test, right? Yeah. Now, what is a way that you used to kind of bef even before you started uh, producing the products uh, to to test it out and test what kind of marketing angles work? Did you run a Kickstarter campaign? Did you create a funnel and run and run ads to it? I know that those are some of the approaches that people use. Well, the, the typical, I, I did the typical internet marketer approach to testing your product. So my advice is always, and, and obviously you want, you want to be really careful when you're doing this. And, and I was really careful because you want to do this like legally and properly, but there is a way to, to do it. So basically what I did is I set up, I literally set up the exact funnel that I would have used to sell the product as if I already had it before having it. So kind of the, the way you do this properly and seriously is like I already knew there was a manufacturer for the probiotic through a white labeling actually so I already knew that existed and then I had my uh, label in my bottle designed as if I was going to manufacture the product with that um, said manufacturer so then I had this thing and I, I also contacted the manufacturer so everything was ready to produce it and all I had to do was just make the initial payment um, that I had to do to manufacture the bottles. So first of all, you want to get into a situation where even the initial capital costs aren't that high. So for me, um, I think coming in, it was like a few thousand dollars and obviously there's the advertising money. Um, but, but I, you know, I was making pretty good money already back then. So it wasn't like a huge amount for me. Um, but still, uh, I managed to, I still wanted to test the product before actually buying it. So what, what I'm saying is I had everything ready to be manufactured, but right before I wanted to test it. So what I did is I already had my whole funnel ready. And that's actually a really good piece of advice that I can give for people is create the funnel before the product. Right. Because um, if the funnel is not going to work, then, you know, either the product is, is not selling or the funnel is, has an issue. But you really want to figure that out before you have your product. And then um, I got on my ad network and I started running my ads, um, started running the funnel. And then we just got the very first few sales. And then I just launched the manufacturing. Um, and obviously these first few customers, um, we told them, hey, look, we have a problem on the production chain. Um, so you can either get a refund or there's gonna be a little delay. And obviously you don't want to do that with like too many sales or there's gonna be issues. So just do that, just see if there's sales, right? That's all you're looking for. And as soon as I had the very first few orders, just pause the ads and then, you know, you start obviously manufacturing it. Um, but that way you really reduce the downside and it's just a really good standard practice. Obviously, um, I'm not a lawyer. You want to check in with your lawyer. I did this really properly. There was no problem, you know, so just be careful about it. Disclaimer. Perfect. Thanks for the disclaimer. Of course, we don't, we don't advise scamming people online. There are too many people nope. doing that already. <laughs>
All right, awesome. This this sounds good, uh, especially because I know that people starting out in a new business may be concerned about uh, the potential risks and how to, you know, get more certainty. <coughs> certainty is definitely what we want more, especially when starting a business that, that, that requires capital. Speaking of which, what are the kind of categories that you need to plan for, and roughly what kind of numbers do you need in order to get started in an in an e-commerce business like that? This is one of those things where there's no one size fits all. Um, and, and I would really recommend that you do your own math. Like it's not rocket science to figure out the math, you know. Um, but I'll, I'll just give you some categories of expenses that you can expect, right? Um, obviously, there's going to be... Um, there's obviously going to be the product design if, if you really want to. So product design is going to be more, if you do white label, it's really just going to be the label design. Um, and then if it's custom manufacturing, then that's a whole nother thing. I've never done custom manufacturing myself. I've worked with people who have helped me to do it, but I, I was never in charge of it. But just do know that if you decide to do custom manufacturing, most likely uh, I hired a consultant to help me with it. So most likely there's going to be consultant fees and then most likely there's going to be um, like the actual product design fees because because you have to do the design not only of the label, but also of the actual product. Um, so there's going to be a little bit of an added expense there. But the upside is you can have a much more unique sort of product. Um, then obviously there's going to be the initial advertising expense. That's something where I can actually give a number because, um, it's pretty standard to do 5,000 to $10,000 for an initial advertising run, uh, at least in, in my world. So, you know, I see a lot of people like they're going to spend like a few hundred dollars on ads and, and they're like, Oh, it's not working. Well, you know, it actually takes like five to $10,000 a lot of the time to get a proper ad campaign working, especially if it's like a new product and stuff. So that's pretty definitive. Like I wouldn't try, um, an ad campaign with less than $5,000 at this point, except maybe if it's like a Facebook ad thing, I don't know, but less than 5,000 sounds sketchy to me for advertising. Uh, let me run through the other things. Obviously you won't have a, uh, you won't have a VA that's going to handle the support. You know, that's maybe a couple hundred dollars a month. Initially, you know, obviously it's going to go up as, as the orders increase. Um, you want to have, um, maybe uh, a VA to help you with administration, although you can probably do that initially at first, um, do it yourself at first. Um, but otherwise that, oh, and obviously the very important part, and this takes a little while to set it up, is you want to have a company that you outsource the shipping to. So you don't want to do the shipping yourself. That's like a huge mistake. So there's actually a lot of companies online. They're, that's literally all they do. All they do is they store products. You can connect them to a Shopify store. You can even do, uh, it's super easy to do custom integrations with ClickFunnels um, and you just integrate it with your store. They're gonna, every order, they're gonna ship it automatically. It's all automated. You don't have to worry about it. Um, you can get your VA to check in on it, but uh, there's a lot of companies that's literally all they do, but so you have to get in touch with them, get a contract, get something going. Um, but usually they, you, you have to pay them for every order. So it's typically going to be anywhere from three to 20 plus dollars per order, um, to, to ship it out and, and store it and all these things. Um, but you know, aside from that, I, I would say, depending if you want to do white label, I think you can really get it going for less than 10, $20,000. 
Um, if you really street smarts less than 10,000, I think it's doable. Um, I wouldn't do it with less than 5,000. Less than 5,000, uh, I would save more money because if you're really short on cash, it's not the right time to start a business like this, you know? Um, and if you want to do custom manufacturing, which obviously, you know, if you do, it has much bigger upside to do custom manufacturing. Um, that's when you're starting to look at minimum, minimum just 30,000, but that's if you're lucky. I would say the most realistic number is 50,000 to 100,000 for custom manufacturing. Um, so those are the numbers. Mm -hmm, that makes sense. So let me just summarize that. So we've got the product design, right? We've got the advertising costs. We've got the, the shipping company, the fulfillment company that you need to take care of. You need a VA to take care of customer support and some admin staff, right? Is there anything else? Well, and the... Um, the uh, and the actual products, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like the main part, you know. Gotcha, gotcha. And the ad costs, I think you mentioned that. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, so that's, that's when it comes to budgeting. Now... Um, after spending all this budget, you need to make your money back, which That's brings us to the point uh, of pricing. Mm -hmm. So what is your approach? Would you rather go with high-end, high-quality products or would you compete on price? So my approach, and, and th there's many approaches to this, and you have to find what works for you. But my approach has always been premium products at premium prices. And I think the way you can figure out what approach you want to do is um, really look at your own behavior as a consumer. And so my behavior as a consumer is, um, if, if, I, if there's something that I want to accomplish, right? There's a goal, there's an idea that I'm pursuing, um, then for me, I'm, I'm, I'm always someone where I'm either all in or I'm out. There's no in between. Um, and that's not necessarily good. That's just how I do things. So, you know, if I'm going to get a health supplement, I'm going to get the best. And if I'm going to get some equipment, you know, we're, we're doing a video now. If I'm going to do a video, I'm going to get the best equipment. I'm going to get the best camera. And it's not necessarily to say I'm spending more, but it's just I probably I do less things. But whenever I do something, I'm just going to go all in and get the best. So this is my behavior as a consumer. And that's kind of what I modeled as a business owner. So I wanted to have the best product, no matter the cost required to manufacture it. And then I was going to sell it at the highest price. You know, that was that was my approach. Um, and people, you would be surprised because there's a lot of people in business um, they really, they really try to differentiate themselves to their lower prices, and and that's typically that's not necessarily the best approach. Obviously, lower prices, all things considered, equal are gonna is gonna be better. Um, but in general, if if people really want what you know the desired result that you're promising, and your product is superior than other products at providing that result, um, they're typically gonna be willing to pay a significant premium to get your product. So my numbers ended up looking something like um, every bottle of my supplement at the highest scale um, is was like eight dollars roughly or something. That's still roughly what it is in terms of the probiotics. So that's actually really expensive for uh, for a supplement. Eight zero. Eight no no eight point uh, like eight dollars. Okay. Like eight? No, I mean that would be crazy. Uh, no, eight dollars per bottle, and and just so you know, that's very expensive because it was white labeled, and also to be fair, it was a really, really, really good product. 
Um, so most supplements, like a lot of the time, you can get them for like 50 cents per bottle. But like mine was like $8 per bottle. But the upside is um, after some experiments, the final price ended up being uh, 67 euros per bottle. Um, which is around, I think, $75, roughly. So we're almost looking at a 10x margin. Um, and obviously, the, the, it's the margin, you also have to subtract the shipping costs and all these things. But, you know, roughly, if you did the math after shipping and, and, and then there's VAT and all these things, you know. Uh, but I was close to like a 5x margin or something like that, you know. Um, depending on the, the situation. So that I had all this thing that I could pour into advertising, uh, which helped this thing grow like really, really quickly. Um, and again, don't, don't try to fuck with me on the math. I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I'd have to like look at the exact numbers because um, I'm obviously into other projects as well. But that was, it, basically it was a really, really good thing. We're like, you know, good enough where I don't have to know my margin by memory and it still made like a really good amount of money. Uh, that's how you know you have like a good winner, you know, when you don't have to like penny pinch every little cent here and there. Um, so yeah, that's just my approach. Premium products at a premium price. Mm -hmm. Super important. And yeah, you definitely need to keep your margins high enough to be able to reinvest into ads, right? By the simple principle, whoever can spend most on acquiring customers wins in the market. Now, another thing that I wanted to, to talk about is because, you know, a lot of people imagine e-commerce business to be, uh, to be a little bit easier to scale and automate than, for example, a service business. We have a lot of people in the audience who are transitioning from a service-based business into e-commerce uh, because they are chasing this, this dream of automation and they are kind of fed up with all the you know, client delivery that they need to do. So is this really the case in e-commerce? And if so, um, what does it take to properly automate your business? Because there are, of course, e-commerce owners who are also struggling with that, feeling stuck with their business and the complexity of the changing market. So what was your, because obviously we're sitting here, you're not spending that much time working on this business, pursuing other projects. So what was your story like in this sense? <clears throat> I think, you know, th there's two sides to this. The first one that I do want to mention is, uh, the grass is always greener. Um, so, so people, a lot of the time, they, they're going to chase a new opportunity as a way to escape their current business. Um, and that's not necessarily bad, but it has to come from the right place. So if you're currently, let's see, if you're struggling financially in your current business, and it's a business that is obviously working for other people, such as like consulting and, and, and um, you know, even if it's dropshipping or things like that, um, going into a new business is very rarely going to solve that issue. I'm just saying if it's not working at all, right? Or barely. So if you're not making a living from your business, um, then switching to a new business, I, I don't think that's going to solve it personally. Um, now the scaling thing is a whole nother issue. Um, and I think there's two valid reasons for going into a new business and what you're currently pursuing. The first one is really obvious is, um, and it's, if there's something else that really interests you, and I think interest for me personally, um, my interest, they last anywhere from six months to a few years, but eventually I do like getting into new things because I think, um, I don't know, it's just how I like doing things. Um, the other reason is obviously sometimes um, 
if you really want to make a certain kind of impact, right, and that can, you know, we can call that scaling or, or something like that. If you want to grow your revenue because you want to get higher profits or you want to reach more people, then that can be a valid reason for going into a new business. And, and an e-commerce business is a little bit more scalable. And, and the reason why is... Um, Inherently, people understand the value of physical product more easily than that of a service or an information product. It's just a fact, you know, like there's such a big difference between something tangible and something intangible that at the end of the day, um, I think there's only a certain smaller portion of the market who's open to like, let's say an information products. And I've seen it in my campaigns where systematically, a, um, a physical product will get higher conversions just because you know you're maybe gonna get like let's say there's like the whole pie of the market um, you're gonna get access to potentially the whole market but whereas if you were doing a service or an info product you'd really only be getting maybe like 30 to 50 percent because the other half they're like ah this, I don't even understand what this is um, so inherently, it will be more scalable. Also, but the main factor in it being scalable is what's the size of the industry. You know, this is something that people don't even think about. It's like any product or business in general has to solve a problem. And if there's not enough people who have that problem, then you're just not going to go really big. You know, like if you're... Uh, if you're selling painting, uh, like a little paintbrush for, for people who want to paint, well, that's great. And if you love it, then that's great. But at the end of the day, there's just not that many people who struggle with finding good painting brushes, you know. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's quite a few, but if you compare that to people who struggle with, uh, with excess weight and being overweight, I mean, it's, like, it's just like almost half the population, right? Um, and it's the same thing with, with almost everything. Like, um, if you want to sell water bottles, well, then you have literally every human on earth that's potentially interested. So just think about that if you want to scale. Yeah, so we're talking about finding a, a problem that enough people have, but also it has to be a problem of a big enough magnitude for people to be willing to pay a certain amount of money for it, right? Correct. So we've got those two axes that we need to think about. All right, so we've discussed a little bit about the market, a little bit about choosing the products. Now, in our previous conversations, uh, because I want to give uh, our audience something a little bit more tangible in terms of the roadmap or as, or factors that they need to consider. You were talking about a lot about the merchant processing and the importance of, of that on an e-commerce business. So could you explain a little bit more about what it is, why it's important for an e-commerce business and how to, how to figure this out from the scratch? So <clears throat> merchant processing for people who don't know, because actually a lot of people don't know, is just the ability to process payments online. And um, it's actually a, a very underrated part of e-commerce. So the first thing that I want to touch on before going into this is just the importance of a having a recurring payment model in your e-commerce business. So that's actually one of my favorite things about the supplement business. It's just that um, obviously you have to buy it. Well, you don't have to, but like if it works, you're going to buy it every month, right? Um, there's a lot of supplements that I'm personally subscribed to that I buy. I've been buying every month for years, you know? So 
think about my lifetime value to a business in my company I'm literally, I literally have supplements whose uh, lifetime value is over $2,000, right? And those are supplements where the max you can buy it for, if you really buy all the maximum amount of bottles and all the upsells, etc., you could probably have an order for $300, $400 or something. Um, so to have a customer with a lifetime value of over $2,000 uh, really says something about obviously the company, but also like the industry too. So in your business, my general advice is just figure out a way that obviously has to provide value to the consumer, but figure out how to provide value to the consumer through a recurring billing model. Because if you can do that, it's just the golden thing where your customer gets more value and you get a lot more value. As a business tr business owner, trust me, if you're going in every month and you know how much amount, you know, the exact amount of money that's going to be coming in, um, you're just going to sleep a lot better at night. Uh, so that leads us to merchant processing because um, processing subscriptions is a relatively delicate art. And, uh, you know, in general, if you do it ethically, if you do it in a way that's, um, uh, that's just proper, where you're actually providing value, etc., there's not really going to be any problem. But there is also a lot of, um, unfortunately, there's been a lot of scams online with recurring billing, you know, like, um, and merchant processors and banks in general are just really scared of, um, they're just really scared of recurring billing in general, because if, if it's done wrong, it can create a lot of issues. So the very first thing that I would do for that is I would consult with a lawyer, because as always, I do not give legal advice. I consulted with a lawyer to know how to do recurring billing properly and correctly, and you should do that too, uh, because every country is different. There may be different regulations. There's probably certain disclaimers that you're gonna have to put on the page, um, etc. All that stuff, you really have to figure it out, because otherwise, you're going to be in, in trouble, you know. So then once you have that figured out, um, my advice is if you're just starting out, don't freak out too much about this. Use Stripe. It's a great payment processor. That's what I got started with. Um, but Stripe has its limits in terms of subscriptions. Um, a lot of the time, what's going to happen is you're going to lose a lot of subscriptions because Stripe uh, won't be able to process their card. Like they'll be able to process it for the initial payment, but then um, you're going to lose like a significant amount of money where they're not going to be able to rebuild it, even though the customer explicitly agreed to being rebuilt, right? Um, so you, you know, Stripe has its issues. So what you want to do for that is. Um, there's actually a lot of companies online where, you know, you can just Google this who are specialized in merchant processing and it is a process. That's why it's, it's important to be aware of this. It is a process. It can take it you know, anywhere from a few weeks to even a few months because what the banks will do is they'll really do a background check on you to see if you're not a scammer. That's how seriously they take this to see if you're not like laundering money or anything. Um, so they'll have this whole process that they have you go through. But once you have that, it's just so valuable to your business and, and just your ability to um, to generate long-term value for, for your customers in your business. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the topic that few people when starting out are even aware, right? Especially if somebody has not been selling anything online before. Um, 
Now I'd like to go back a little bit because you mentioned uh, when we were discussing the budget, you mentioned the minimum amount you'd like to spend on advertising when getting started. So having said that, is there any process or any kind of decision-making framework that you have for choosing the advertising channel that you would go with for? Does it depend on uh, the products? Does it depend on you know, how much money you have? Or what's, what's your take on that? This is really something where that's literally like a skill set in and of itself, right? Like there's people, there's people like me who just make a living, like, choose, like making decisions like this. All right. So I wanted to also get back to the topic. When we were discussing the budget, you mentioned that you suggest investing at least, at least $5,000 to $10,000 into advertising. Um, what about the, the choice of the ad network or um, is, there any, is there any strategy that you're using to, to, to set that decision? Do you go with Google? Do you go with Facebook? Everybody is, I think the Facebook is now the, the default option, right? <laughs> exactly. Some people are also considering some, some organic strategies. So uh, what is your approach to choosing your source of traffic? So this is actually a much more complex question than, than people think because there's just a lot of variables that are involved. Um, and that's just something where that's like literally a whole skill set in and of itself. But I would say that there's actually a few things that um, there's a few variables that you need to account for. Um, so the first one is obviously depends on the product. So that in terms of that i think it really comes down to do you have a very sort of visual product or do you have a product where if you just see it it doesn't really make sense and it needs a lot of explanation so if you have a very very visual product um i would just go with youtube ads that's super obvious because you can demonstrate it um also uh, it also depends on your funnel so what kind of funnel do you want to use? Uh, again, if you have a very visual product, like I would consider maybe doing like a sales video demonstration on like a landing page or something, maybe something along those lines. Um, but yeah, it depends on the funnel. So if you want to do a, um, you know, if you want to do what's called an advertorial, which is an article to promote your product, then you're probably better off going with native networks like Outbrain and Taboola because um, an advertorial really makes sense because the, the, the ads look like content pieces. Um, what I would say is Facebook has a very sort of specific set of products that are absolutely perfect for it. Um, and those would be um, if you have a product where there's a really clear target audience, you know, like there's a really clear sort of interest or there's a really clear group of people who are interested in that product, then Facebook is going to be perfect because the targeting on Facebook is absolutely incredible. Um, and it's just really, really good. So if you have that and just go for Facebook. And again, if you have a very visual product, arguably you could also do like a video, Facebook video ad. So that's sort of like the main factor is the targeting requirements. Um, Google in general 
is really, really good for problems that solve a very specific problem. So it's maybe something where the target audience isn't quite as defined, but it, it's just about solving a problem. Because then um, with AdWords, you can literally target any keywords. Um, and AdWords is one of those things where for a lot of things, it's just horrible. But when you have a product where it solves the problem that can be summarized in a keyword, then you're just gonna kill it. Um, and lastly, I would say the Google Display Network has, you know, lesser targeting capabilities. So, um, I, you know, I've explained Facebook, I explained Google, I would, I, AdWords, I would look into um, the Google Display Network just the same as native ads, and that's for products that are more mainstream, where, you know, a lot of people would be interested in it. Um, and also a product where um, there might be a, you know, there might be like it's, it still solves a problem, but it might still be something that requires more explanation, right? Maybe if it's like a newer invention or again, like if it's something that's like before a wave has started, you might want to use display network or native because then you have the ability to go through like longer funnels, you know, with less sort of less targeted advertising. Gotcha. Gotcha. So uh, for in your case, it was native that got you the biggest scaling uh, capabilities, right? So that's what I went for. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, obviously the the choice of the ad platform really depends on the kind of products that you're selling. But I like how there's a framework that's emerging, right? So we went from establishing a few uh, kind of key uh, key kind of checkpoints in the markets, right? We, you need a market that is big for your product. You need a market that is uh, you need a product that is solving a big problem for a big market. You also need a product that is, um, and then you've got kind of a checklist, just like you mentioned, for all, for choosing your advertising network, right? So if your product is visual or not, right? So it's almost like a decision tree, right? So our audience is going to have something actionable from this. I like it. Okay, now, so let's uh, kind of tone down a little bit and let's um, let's talk about some of the funny or less funny or costly or less costly mistakes that you've made in your business that you feel that somebody can, can learn from. So there's a few. Um, I'll start with if we're talking about the most costly, um, it, there's two that were just absolutely massive. Um, that it's just, you know, you, you want to cry when you, when you do that. Um, basically the first one was, uh, not being careful enough about just, I'd say not being aware enough of like the complexity of, um, just shipping a large amount of products. And not in in the same sort of box, not being aware enough of um, the legalities of um, the products. Which I mean, I'm in the supplement industry, so now I'm just like super careful. But I mean, back then I didn't know as much. Um, so actually, um, basically, <clears throat> you have to have like super. You know, you have to be really careful about what you have on your actual label. Um, that's why as soon as possible, you get a lawyer to know exactly what you're supposed to put on the label. Um, you get a lawyer to know which claims you're allowed to make, which claims you're not allowed to make. 
when it comes to claims, I was always careful because I knew about it, but it's more about what do you put on the label that, you know, what should you put on the label? And then you also have to usually declare products a certain way. So all these things, I wasn't aware of it, ended up costing me like massive amounts of money because uh, we had like shipping delays and we had products stuck in customs and all these things. So that was like crazy. The other thing is, yeah, I was saying the complexity of shipping large amounts of orders. So it's not because you're successfully shipping 10 to 20 orders a day that you're going to successfully ship 200 orders a day, right? Because, you know, when you increase the scale, you increase the complexity, there's going to be things breaking down. You know, we had custom integrations with our shipping uh, partner. And then these integrations, there, there's always going to be some bugs and problems that's going to cause like delays. And it's just like a whole thing in and of itself. So I would say not investing enough time and just thought into really making sure that I had like a foolproof system for shipping orders. Um, I would say that that was a big mistake. And the what, reason why both of these things are really costly is because any ship, like literally just let me break it down for you. Any shipping problem that you have, customers will be pissed off. That's obvious. If they're pissed off and you, you want to do things ethically, you have to refund them. And you do refund them, but then you've already spent the money on advertising to acquire these customers. So not only do you have to refund, but you've also lost the ad, the ad money. So let's say uh, you have a media buy, you spend 50,000 on ads, um, and let's say you get um, just random numbers, could, maybe they don't make sense, I don't know, but you spend 50,000 on ads, you get 150,000 in revenue, let's say you have a high margin product, so you, out of that 150,000 in revenue, that's 100,000 of net margin before ad costs, so then supposedly you should have a $50,000 profit, but now let's introduce in the equation, um, let's say out of that you got what, 150,000 orders, um, let's say you get a thousand customers out of that average order value 150. Well, if, if let's say you have a shipping problem with 200 of these orders, right? They're not just a delay, right? Just a delay. There's going to be like a three week delay for them to receive it. Well, let's say you get a hundred of those people who ask for a refund, like they're not cool waiting. Well, you, so you do refund them and then a hundred people with a 150 margin that you've literally lost 15,000, um, you know, and that's just gone. So instead of making 50,000, you end up having 35,000 and probably even less because there's like other things that, that go in the equation, you know? Um, so, you can lose a lot of money with shipping problems. Um, I would how, say. How do you how do you mitigate that now? What do you do to? Well, you don't. You know, obviously, once it happens, you want to deal with it as best as you can. But there's no secret. You know, you just have to give you know give people their money back and just apologize and you know as much as possible. You want to you know offer them options and discounts to you know try to convince them to stay with your company so they're not too pissed off. But uh, ideally, you don't mitigate it at all. That's my approach now. You know that's why I'm just way more careful now. So you just want to create a foolproof system where you basically just want to have one, it, once you start having another volume, obviously, you want to have one person full-time on shipping. Just one, and they have, you know, they have to have experience with it. Just one person, they're going to be working with your developers if there's any integrations needed. They're just going to be there, monitor what's going on, see if every order is, is fulfilled, maybe hire a VA, um, 
India, in the Philippines to check in on every order, all these things, you know, you just want to make this foolproof. And then anytime there's a problem with like an order or something, you don't just want to solve that specific order. You want to go back to the root thing that created that problem so it never happens again, right? You really don't want to have this systematic process. Um, and once that's done, I mean, it's not really a hassle, but it just has to be set up properly. Uh, I would say this is not really a mistake, but it's more a regret that I have. And that's not having invested into organic traffic. Um, because organic traffic, at the end of the day, there's no ad costs. Um, it's not exactly free because there's the cost in terms of setting it up, but you know it has really compounding returns over time. So you know, I would say if I could go back, um, I would just set up like a little blog, hire a writer, maybe put like 50 articles, like high quality articles on this blog, rank it for the proper keywords. It's really not rocket science to do SEO. Um, and just get it to rank. And had I done that back then, probably I would be making like an extra million a year profit, you know? So that is, that is a regret that I have. Um, and I would advise doing it if, if you can. That's a nice one. And now I wouldn't be myself if I didn't ask, but what is the kind of mindset or paradigm shift that you've gone through in your e-commerce business that allowed you to like really make it big? Or was there something that you were struggling with at the beginning? There was something that you discovered and click, you're there. I think what really, it, it's funny, it, the, the mindset shift happened right when I, it's actually what made me start the company. And it was a mindset shift because, so I, you know, to give people a little background, I've been doing internet marketing since I was 14 years old, right? I'm 21 now. So it's been like seven years. And frankly, I've been learning about it for even longer, but I really effectively started the first business when I was 14 online. So from 14 to 18, I always saw myself as this sort of like digital ninja, right? That was just like figuring things out. And I was really, you know, I had, a, I used to sell eBooks online and, and those businesses were okay, but it was never, it was never like great. You know, it was always businesses where it's kind of like tactical a little bit, like little tricks that I would find and little things like that. Um, and what happened is I, I was reading the biography of Elon Musk at the time. And there's sort of this vision in my head that popped up of like, what if instead of all these like tricks and little things, like what if I created like a real business, you know? And that was like the key word for me. The key phrase was like, creating a real business. So a real business is like just doing everything proper. You know, that's what I was telling myself. I was telling myself, dude, you're just going to do everything proper. Like you're going to find the product that people really want that can add a lot of value to people. Um, and then you're going to find a way to make that product unique. You're going to have amazing design. You're going to have the best marketing. Um, and you're just going to crush it, but you're going to crush it properly by doing something that really adds a lot of value, right? Um, and you're not going to look for any little tactic. You're not going to look for the secret shortcut. You're just going to do it proper step by step. Um, you know, you don't need the money. Just do it to do something great, you know? And that was the mindset that really propelled me to start this, this company, right? Doing something great, doing it proper, adding value to the customer. Um, and I would see really staying focused on the principles. So the more you can shift your thinking from being tactical to being principle oriented, the better you're going to do in general. So 
a really good example I can give of that, you know, I, I was also reading the book at the time, the um, the the book by of uh, Amazon, the the Jeff Bezos book, right, which is really really awesome. The Everything Store is the name of the book, um, and I was also reading it at the time, and and I was looking at interviews of like Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and all these great business people. And it's funny because um, these interviews never get a lot of traction online. Like people don't really care about them because they always go the exact same way. So a typical interview of Warren Buffett is always going to go like this. Interviewer, uh, what do you think about XYZ stock? It's been going down lately. Um, and, you know, or, or what do you think about XYZ stock? It's been booming lately. And Warren Buffett, inevitably, you know, inevitably, you can look it up online. He's going to give almost the same answer word by word. Like, we do not invest in stocks for the short term. We only buy undervalued companies for the long term. And we don't look at short term price movement. And no matter how, which means, aka the translation of that is, we're not focused on little tricks and tactics to make money in the short term by scamming Wall Street. <laughs> we're just focused on investing companies that provide a lot of value in the long term, right? It's like principle-oriented versus being tactical-oriented. And, um, and inevitably, no matter how many times he gives that answer, you know, next interview, what do you think about XYZ stock going down? And he always, he's always back to it. It's like, we don't do short-term investing in the stock market. That's not how we operate. I can't predict the price of a stock, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos interview, you know, let's say 2018. Um, I think it was like an amazing year for Amazon or something. So, um, you know, Amazon did great this year. What do you think are the things that allowed it to do great this year? And then it's like, we're focused on the customer. We think long term um, and we always try to innovate um, and, and, you know, just just be better than everyone by providing more value. And every year it's always the same thing. Like, why do you think Amazon does so? And it's always the same answer from like 1996 to like 2019, right? So the more you can think in principles, like the closer you get to Bezos and Buffett, the way I think about it, the better off you're going to be. You know, the more you think like a billionaire, the better off you're going to be. Awesome. This is amazing. And and also you mentioned, because I, I think that this is uh, what's part of our audience may be thinking about. So getting a peek into your head, which is what kind of books you're reading. But actually, you, you just mentioned two of them. And I'm... I think I'm more interested into what kind of supplements do you take? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, listing all of them would be too long. Um, I'm going to recommend a few just off the top of my head. Um, in terms of like mental focus, um, Alpha Brain is just, I've just seen really good results with it. There's even like two clinical studies that on humans, uh, healthy humans that prove it's effective. So Alpha Brain just for like mental focus, um, staying calm, you know, not having emotions, uh, mess with your work, all these things, just really good. Um, you want to get the basics in like magnesium. I think something like 80% of people are deficient in magnesium. Uh, something like zinc to, um, if you exercise a lot, a lot of people who exercise quite a bit are deficient in zinc. Um, you know, you want to look into, uh, I would get a good, uh, more, like a B vitamin complex or something like that. A lot of people, there's going to be one or two B vitamins that they're deficient in. That's going to hurt their energy production and all these things. Um, 
And aside from supplements, just like a quick thing, like before supplements, like just get a proper exercise routine, you know, like three times per week. I, I personally do a, a lot of like weight training, but I also do like twice per week. I do some sprints, which really helps with like mental focus and all these things. There's a lot of studies to back it up. So if you're really lazy, just twice per week, just get out. Do like five or six, six sets of sprints. Really, it doesn't take that much time. 20 minutes makes a huge difference. Same thing with your diet. Like, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel here, but just, you know, don't eat like simple carbs all the time. Try to eat like, you know, good, a lot, good amount of protein, good fats, healthy carbs. All these things, they do make a huge difference as well. Um, and then going back to the supplements, uh, I would say for like exercise performance, if you do a lot of weightlifting, uh, citrulline and creatine are good ones too. Um, there's things for appetite reduction if you're trying to lose weight, such as uh, saffron extract, 5-HTP uh, are really good ones. And then for sleep, I personally take melatonin relatively frequently um, and uh, just really helps with sleep quality, circadian rhythm, all these things. Um, trying to think i mean those are those are all really good um maybe if you have like skin problems look into i used to have really bad acne uh look into something like uh like a liver supplement that generally really helps with like skin for example silly marin all these things um yeah that's that's what i can think of Cool, super, super valuable advice. Let's not forget that we're in business to actually live a proper life, yes. which uh, health is a very important part of. All right, awesome. And also one more thing I wanted to ask you about because we want the community around our audience to also be focused on people supporting each other and actually benefiting from the, from the guests and benefiting the guests that we're bringing in. So what are the things that... Um, that you would be able to help our community with? What kind of things would you like the audience to, to contact you about? So one of the things that I've been working on recently was sort of a shift, not really a shift, but just a new project that I had. Um, because a lot of people, I've obviously made most of my revenue in my business through native ads. And I was honestly quite lucky because I got started with native ads in late 2016. So for those people who don't know, native ads are just one of the most underrated traffic opportunities on the internet right now. It's literally, we're talking about like, like tens, if not hundreds of billions and billions of impressions, uh, massive amounts of traffic. Uh, so native ads are those little things that whenever you're reading an article, at the end of the article, you're going to see um, like a little thing with like, you might also like dot, dot, dot. And those things are actually ads, believe it or not. And that's part of why they're so effective because a lot of the time people won't even know that they're ads. And I mean, imagine how good that is, you know, if they don't even know it's an ad. Um, and we're, you know, it's a huge amount of volume. It's, you know, a lot of like really premium publishers. So I got started at a really good time, honestly. Late 2016, uh, very few people knew about it. Um, and I had a really good offer. So even though I didn't know anything about native ads, uh, it just blew up, right? I just had crazy budgets. Um, ever since then, I've literally spent millions of dollars on native networks profitably. Um, and now obviously it's hyper competitive, but, um, 
you know, I know what I'm doing because I spent all this money and I have like the software and the tools to do it. So one thing I started doing is I had, I did a little experiment through, there's someone who contacted me um, who also had a supplement company in the US actually. And that guy told me, hey, look, I have this offer. Um, do you think you can run any of ads for it? Because he didn't know about it. And I was like, you know, I'll give it a try. Why not? Um, and so I started running his ads. And so what happened is on my end, it actually didn't take me that much time because I have all the things set up. I even have software to automate everything, etc. Um, and then he basically, we started generating like massive amounts of revenue for this guy. Um, basically the first month of running, um, we added an extra $250,000 in revenue to his business, which obviously is a huge amount. And we're still, we're still consistently generating a hundred, $200,000 a month for him in business, you know, um, through the native ads. And, uh, that's kind of what sparked, I was like, you know, there's something there. Like, I can't just like stick with that. Uh, so that's why recently I've been working on um, kind of an agency, I guess, called Natty Media. Um, and the idea is basically if you have a product that's relatively mainstream, um, if, if you already have a business that's doing well, this is not if you're you know just starting out, but if you already you have something mainstream and you have something where you think it can go big, um, then potentially, can't guarantee it, but potentially um, this, uh, this could be really big for you. So the way to do it is simply go to natty-media.com. That's N-A-T-I-M-E-D-I-A.com. And uh, let's get in touch. Otherwise, had a great time on the podcast. I mean, I hope we added a lot of value to you guys. It's been a pleasure hosting you. It's been definitely insightful for me because to those who don't know, this podcast is also us documenting the journey in e-commerce ourselves. We are originally um, e-commerce marketers and now we are giving it a try with our own e-commerce brands. So we are inviting awesome entrepreneurs, e-commerce entrepreneurs to give us tips on our way up. And we're going to be documenting all the journey, all the steps, all the little mistakes that we make as well. Um, just so that you guys also can follow our footsteps and see that e-commerce doesn't have to be that difficult to crush it in. Thanks a lot.